set in. You know, there's a lot of things that we do, especially in this nation, that are just Americanized thinking and ways of doing things. And, um, you know, I, I know in America we like to take it easy during the summer, um, and rightfully so. Um, you know, especially with kids, if you have kids that are still in school, you're taking every opportunity that you can to enjoy yourselves and, and, and do those type of things. But I encourage you as much as possible to be in church this summer, continue to be in attendance, continue to give and sow financially. Um, you know, as pastors, we hear about all the statistics and things that happen in the summer, but I believe we can be different. I don't believe that we have to decrease in anything that we do. Uh, that we can still enjoy ourselves and still have a good time in the summer, but still stay with the practices and the the uh, habits that we know are beneficial to us. Amen. So I encourage you to be here, and, and I'm kicking off a series uh, here at the beginning of June, and um, I know this isn't necessarily a popular summer series. I try to keep it a little more lighthearted, uh, but this is something that God has placed on my heart, um, and I it's, it's really interesting. I've begun seeing an increase uh, lately just through ministers and, and different words that are being spoken um, on the end times. And a lot of them focusing on prophecy, a lot of them focusing on, uh, you know, what do all these things that we're seeing in the world mean for us today? Uh, how does it impact us as the church? How does it impact our lives? Uh, you know, not only spiritually, but personally. Um, how do these things affect us? We hear a lot of the stuff that's going on around the world and how Christians are being persecuted and these different types of things. And um, so God started impressing upon my heart, especially during this series of challenges and challengers. And um, I'm not trying to stay in the vein of trials. I'm not trying to keep us in this, uh, you know, atmosphere of gloom and doom, uh, especially going into the summertime. Um, but I think this is going to be a very, um, if I can use the word, relevant series. These are going to be a very relevant set of messages that I'm going to bring. And when I say relevant, I don't mean relevant to the world. I mean relevant to our age, relevant to our times, uh, relevant to what's currently going on in society today, not just around the world, but even in our own nation, the things that we're seeing that are beginning to come in. And we know that it's going to get worse. We know that there's an expectation of darkness becoming darker, but the perspective that I want to bring throughout this series is what is the role of the church? What is the role of the church throughout all this? And I began looking through the word, and, and there's a, a television show that I don't know if you've caught uh, that really began to enlighten me to this thing. Um, uh, a, a couple of producers got together, and they're doing this TV show. I believe it's on NBC right now called A.D. It's walking them through the New Testament. It's a continuation of the, the Bible series that came out last year that got up to Jesus' crucifixion and uh, burial and resurrection. And, and now they're showing the, the book of Acts, basically, is where we're at. And what I began to realize is I'm watching this show that's telling me what happened 2,000 years ago, but yet I'm seeing the same thing taking place today. They might not be using swords, and they might not be using, uh, you know, might not have Roman soldiers that will come tramping right down your street, but we're seeing the same persecution. We're seeing the same things taking place 
today. There's literally nothing new about what we're seeing today. So I was listening to a minister a few weeks ago. He's uh, ministering right now on end times and the prophetic stuff and taking a look at the things that are taking place. And, 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 and we'll go through Matthew chapter 24. We'll talk about what Jesus declared, how the end times would look and those type of things. Um, and, and given a lot of imagery, and there's a lot of detail, but I want to focus more on the principle. I, I'm not going to start talking about blood moons, and I'm not going to tell you about what this actually means and what this hurricane means and what this tsunami. There are references and there are things happening there, but he made this statement. He said, in every generation we have seen the plagues and the turmoil, because every generation since Peter and Paul, who were on the earth when Jesus walked on the earth, has made this statement, the end is near. We've all preached that Jesus is coming soon, that Jesus' return is imminent. I remember when I was a kid, the, the, the statement that was the most popular when I was a kid was, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for what? Are you ready for the return of Jesus? And so you have this picture in your mind that I need to hurry up and get dressed because I'm waiting for someone to come get me. That was, that was the picture that we had. I'm waiting for someone to come and take me out of this earth and take me away from this world and take me back to heaven where he is and live with him forever. And we'll find out it's much more than that. Um, but what I've discovered and what this man said is, you know, every generation has seen different signs. But no generation except for the generation that we're living in today is seeing every sign be fulfilled at the same time. And we're in that generation today. All I know is, is that we are closer to the return of Jesus than anybody else has ever been. <laughs> Can we all agree on that? Every second that ticks by us, we're closer. Nope, now we're, clo we're closer now. We are continually progressing towards that. Now, are you ready? Are you ready? See, before three years ago, I used to only have to be concerned when it was time to go somewhere with getting myself ready. But three years ago, four years ago, four years ago, a little child entered my life. His name is Camden. And so now I have something to do while I'm waiting for my wife to get ready. Because you know I'm faster than her. Are there any women in here that are faster than your husband? Okay, all right. We've got some. Okay, all right. <laughs> hey, don't get upset. My best friend is the slowest person at getting ready in the entire world. Pastor Marcus is the worst. He will clock out above any female on the face of this planet. It's all right. So your hair needs a little extra attention. So you got to iron every single wrinkle out of that. There's some wrinkles I'm okay with. I'm all right with that. It looks better that way. I don't need it all straight and clean. So, you know, I'm faster than my wife, but now... Not only am I getting myself ready, I'm getting someone else ready. 
And has the church been so concerned with being ready for Jesus that we haven't been getting anybody else ready for Jesus? Are we standing around letting them walk out of the house with their hair all crazy and, uh, you know, wrong outfit on and, and sleep in their eyes when we should have been getting them prepared too? Just a thought. We've been focused on us. We've been focused internally. We've been focused on getting ourselves right. That we've forgotten about the world that's going to hell. And in that, we talk about all the problems, but we are not solving any problems. And I believe the church is in the earth today to solve problems. And if you don't want to be a part of a problem-solving church, you're at the wrong church. If you want to be a part of a church that just wants to come and do your little righteous thing every Sunday and every Wednesday and get your little Bible study time in and hang out with a few Christians every now and then and, and don't want to impact anything, you're at the wrong place. This is the church that's going to raise up Christians that are going to be the church, not just go to church. And I believe, I believe that not only are we repeating something, yes, we're progressing and advancing, but we never left the time of persecution. The church just found a way to shut itself up from the persecution better. That's where I believe we're at today. I was just reading an article this past week. From a very well-known minister, probably one of the largest churches in the world. If I said his name, say the name of the ministry, you would know who they are. And and he was recently uh, uh, questioned on the uh, status of homosexuality. Everybody in the media world wants to know where the pastor stands. Like, I'm going to take a different position than the Bible. And that's what they want you to do. That's ultimately what they want you to do. They don't want to just hear your side. They don't want to just hear your heart or your mind on the matter or get your opinion. They want to know, will you side with the Bible or will you compromise even the very thing you claim to believe in? And I'm sure that there's a lot of pressure as a pastor when you pastor a a, a church of over 50,000 people. I'm sure there's a lot of pressure on and being careful in how you word things because if you lose 50,000 people in one day, I mean, they're thinking about budgets, they're thinking about buildings, they're thinking about locations and campuses, they're thinking about their marriages, they're thinking about their staff, they're thinking about how many people am I going to have to lay off next week because I've just lost uh, $2 million in our budget because this many people left. Uh, We have some big givers in the church, and so what if one of them gets offended at the way that I say this um, and decides to take his giving away? Uh, How's that going to affect us? I'm sure there's a lot of pressure there. But if you're going to tell me the disciples didn't have to face any pressure when they were questioned about the word of God, you're wrong. And so, you know, he took the safe route, which tends to be uh, the route most of them take. And I can understand using caution, and I can understand being careful with your words. Uh, The way that he worded it was, You know, the world wants me to give a simple yes or no to this question. Um, But honestly, there's just, we're living in a different time. We're living in a different age where these things have a different prominence than they did back then. And I'm just wanting to be careful in how I respond to this. And I understand where he's coming from. But there is a lack of standing on the word of God in the church today. There is a lack 
of remaining firmly grounded in the word. And there is this allowance and acceptance that's being allowed in the church. And we're talking about immovable. Immovable. I'm talking about a church, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. But what I'm seeing today is churches that are shaken. Now, when I say shaken, I don't mean that they're struggling financially. I don't mean that they're struggling to keep the doors open. I don't mean that they're struggling to keep people coming to their church. Uh, Some of the churches that are being shaken today are very large, wealthy churches. Uh, They have pastors that drive Bentleys. They they have a a staff that makes over $100,000 a year. They're not being shaken in those terms. They don't know persecution the way the disciples and the apostles know persecution. Where they're being shaken is in their faith. And where they believe that they are preaching the gospel, they're not. And the church that was in the book of Acts that had to come up against real persecution and that remained firm was a church that remained firm in their word and would not compromise their speech. Even when they were told not to preach in the name of Jesus, they said, look, whether it's right or wrong to disobey you, we cannot disobey our God. We will continue preaching in the name of Jesus. And these were people that had their lives on the line. They could have literally taken their life right there. There were many times that the only reason they didn't kill them on the spot is because of the crowds that were standing around. Had nobody been around, we would have taken your head off. And eventually it got to that. So we're going to talk about a church that's immovable. I want to talk about our role. In the midst of what we're seeing in the world today. And when we talk about end times. And when we talk about the end is near. When we talk about these things. These things are not meant to bring fear upon us. They are meant to bring comfort to us. So you need to know that. Right here out the gate, everything that we talk about, everything that we bring up, every road that we go down, regardless of how scary and bleak it may look, it's to comfort you. Just go ahead and plan a smile a lot. It's the summertime. This is a happy series. But I have to open the door here. And the title of my message this morning is, Are You Not Entertained? Are you not entertained? The demise of the church today and the demise of the world today is due to one thing, one word. It's actually a very simple word. It's three letters. It's like one of those words that you learn as a kid, like see Jane run. It's a word sin. The reason we're all in this mess in the first place is because of sin. The reason why there is such a a destruction taking place in the world today is because of sin. Sin. And where the, the church is failing today is in the sin area. Two ways the church is failing in the sin area. Number one, 
the church is sinning in housing sinners. People that claim to be Christians but do not live according to the word of God. There's no accountability anymore today. We sin and we allow it to happen. And, 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 and Paul dealt with this in the Corinthian church. They were housing a young man that was sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmom. And they were proud of it and wouldn't do anything about it. And Paul said, you hand that young man over to the, the devil, to the enemy, for the destruction of his flesh. In hopes. Kick him out. No, those are words we don't use in the church today. Number one is the church is sinning and not dealing with it. Number two, the church has changed its view on sin. So how are we supposed to be effective if we're not even dealing with the one thing that Jesus came to deal with? Jesus did not come to take you to heaven. Jesus did not go through everything he went through so you could live your little life here on earth and just claim Jesus as Lord in a prayer and get to heaven one day. Jesus came to remove sin out of you because he can't live in you if sin lives in you. The problem that showed up in the garden was sin. And the problem that Jesus came to take care of was sin. It wasn't the devil. It wasn't hell. He didn't come to save you from hell. See, we all think that Jesus came to save us from the penalty of sin. But Jesus actually delivered us from sin itself. Gave us power to rule over it. So where I want to begin today is the need, the need for a righteous church. The need for a righteous church. In the world today... We see sin running so rampant, man. I mean, it is just unbelievable. The things that people are coming up with today. And the Bible tells us, the Bible says that they will invent new ways to sin. They will get bored with sinning the way that they've always been sinning, and they will find new ways to sin. But the Bible also tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. The Bible tells us that the way... It has been is the way it's going to be, and the way it's going to be is the way that it always has been. There's nothing new under the sun. But we're, we're seeing it today. I mean, we were all perplexed with the whole, you know, homosexual thing. And now we've just gone past that, and we're just on to transgender now. Now you get to pick and choose what gender you want to be. You get to define. You get to pick it out. Now, I, I get a little ramped up about this because the problem is, is we don't have a disdain for sin anymore. We do not, we, we, we don't have this thing that just comes up inside of you and says, oh, that's disgusting. We don't have that anymore. There's no passion against sin today. In the church I'm talking about. We're so nonchalant about it. We, talk, we love to talk about grace. 
And we love to talk about the love of God. And we love to talk about hate the sin and love the person. We love to bring up the bright side. But we don't ever talk about how gross it is to live in sin. Sin is disgusting. If you could see spiritually what sin does to a person. It's pathetic. It's pathetic. And the church has become weak in its nature in how it handles sin today. So we've got to talk about a righteous church. Because before I can talk about immovable, you've got to be right. You've got to be righteous. You've got to be in righteousness. You've got to be in right standing. You've got to see yourself in Christ free from sin and then demolish sin. Get so sick of sin that you don't even want to go near it. We're trying to draw the line so I can find out how close can I get. So I don't cross the line. And God is looking for people that will draw a line in the sand and say, I want to get as far away from that thing as possible. David was a man after God's own heart. And he was a man that hated sin. And he sinned. He did a horrible thing. I mean, his, his story is terrible. It shows you what God can do with an individual that gets freed from sin. He still called him a man after his own heart. Sin doesn't have to mark you. Sin doesn't have to be your identity. But we have to develop something within ourselves in the church that identifies sin for what it is. Because you can't free people from something that you're unwilling to identify them with. If you don't identify them as a sinner, then you can't set them free. we've got to change this culture. A church cannot affect what it feels. A church cannot affect what it feels. Fear does one thing. It paralyzes. When you become fearful... You are paralyzed. You're stuck. Now, paralysis, paralysis is an actual natural thing that happens to people. Some people are born paralyzed. Some people go through things that paralyze them. It becomes a a, a byproduct of an accident they had. And ultimately what paralysis is, is a disconnect from the head to the body. From the head to the body. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. And we are the body of Christ. And we're seeing a paralyzed church. We're seeing a church that is not connected with the head. That becomes immobile. Ineffective. And unproductive. For the kingdom. Success in church is not in numbers. It's not in the size of buildings. It's not in square footage. It's not in budget. It's not 
in the size of your worship team. It's not how long you've been in ministry. That's not success. Success in the church is estimated by the impact on the world around you. In the church, even though we can look successful to the world, are we really being successful in the kingdom? Or are we paralyzed? Are we paralyzed? Because you can dress up somebody and you can make them look like a million bucks, but if they are paralyzed, they aren't going anywhere and they aren't doing anything. I can put all the gold jewelry on your hands and your neck. I can put the, the, the nicest suit on you and the, the, the most expensive shoes I can find. I can put the $25,000 Rolex on your wrist. But if you are lying in bed or sitting in a wheelchair immovable, you are affecting nothing. It's not in dressing up the church that makes us effective. It's in taking care of the world that makes us effective. But how are we going to take care of the world if we can't even identify the one problem they have? We can't even deal with sin. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Don't forget, you got to smile. Don't forget to smile now. I got to remind myself to smile. We got to deal here first, guys. We're going to be a church that's immovable. If you don't want to be shaken in the last days, and the last days are coming and they are upon us now, you're going to have to set up an agenda that is in line with God. His agenda is in thwarting and getting rid of sin. That is his agenda. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem. Watch this. And because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Immediately. See, Jesus preached the kingdom so much, they thought they were, that there was a literal kingdom getting ready to show up in the earth. They're looking for the real kingdom immediately to show up. And so Jesus gives a parable here. Verse 12 says, Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And so he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. One translation says, Occupy till I come. Do business. Do business. What is the business the church is doing today? See, are, are we more concerned with being ready or are we more concerned with being busy? The question. Are we just concerned with getting ourselves ready? 
Or are we understanding that there's work to do before Jesus comes back? That there's some things that we need to do. There are some things we need to affect. There are some things we need to infect. There are some things that we need to ignite, impact, and influence before Jesus returns. Or are we sitting in the airport terminal with our bags packed waiting for them to call our number? He didn't say just sit around and wait. He said do business, occupy yourself, get busy, busy work. I hated that in school when they just gave us busy work. But you know what busy work does? It keeps you from being distracted. And the church today is distracted with things they were never meant to get their hands in in because we're not occupying. The church has become lazy because we're not working towards something. He says, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this this, this man to reign over us. Now, Jesus is talking literal here because King Herod had died. And King Herod is appointed by Roman officials because Rome is occupying this territory. And so Rome has picked an individual to take over for King Herod, and the Jews don't like him. The Jews don't want him. So they sent a delegation to Rome to say, we don't want this man ruling over us. So they know very well what he's saying here. This parable is very literal to them, very real. They hated him, and they sent a delegation after and said, we do not want this man to reign over us. The world is not going to be excited about your king. If you're expecting them to be excited about Jesus and excited about God, they're not. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded those servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained By trading. What's the profit we're bringing into the kingdom of God? What are we gaining for the kingdom of God? He came to the first, said, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? There are churches that are being ineffective for the kingdom of God, and their justification will be, but God, you are going to draw them. You are going to bring them. Holy Spirit's supposed to draw all the people. And then God's going to look at them and say, you should have quit doing what you were doing, and you should have hooked up with that church over there that was doing what they were doing, and at least put it in something that would have gained interest. You should have at least taken your skill and hooked up with another ministry that's, that's doing what they're supposed to be doing, and then you would have been profitable with them what he's saying. Do 
Verse 23, why then did you not put my money in the bank? That at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. He's always looking for something extra. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him, give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. Don't get mad when someone that's blessed gets added to. See, we always think that the one that has the least is the one that gets it. And God turns that all around and says, no, the one that has the most has worked what they had and gotten to where they're at. So they're obviously faithful enough to be added to. Do not get get mad when rich people get blessed. They get blessed and are able to give what they give and be a blessing like they're being a blessing. And so God says, I'm going to bless them even more because I know I can get it through them, not just to them. We live in this culture that we want to help out the church and we want to help out uh, the ones that are down the road that the roof is falling apart. Well, they're not doing anything effective for the kingdom. They're not getting out and doing anything. Give to the ones that are doing something with what they have. But they've already got a $30,000 sound system. They've already got five uh, worship teams. They've already got a large children's ministry. We're going to add to them because they're being faithful with what they have. And notice he took from the one that had the least. It's all about faithfulness, not about amount. For I say to you that to everyone who has, he will be given from whom? From him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. I want to tell you something, guys. Opposition is nothing new to God. Opposition is nothing new to God. He has dealt with it ever since the beginning. If a man in his own kingdom, in heaven, could stand up and say, you need to bow to me, I want to be higher than you, and then take a third of the angels with him, just imagine how bad it's going to be on the earth. That was in heaven, in the presence of God. He's already dealing with opposition. Opposition is nothing new to God. God has always been in the position where there's an enemy on the other side. In the garden. I mean, we're, we're, we're two chapters, three chapters in, and we've already got an enemy. We've already got someone else showing up in the garden that opposes God and everything about God and want, still wants to be like God and now wants to get man to disobey God and obey him. Nothing new, guys. What we're seeing today and the opposition that we're coming against today and the deception that's showing up today, this has been going on from the beginning. And it's never stopped. God, and it didn't stop the church. I want to remind you that in the midst of the greatest persecution, that's when the church was born 
And that's when the church exploded and they could do nothing to stop it. It wasn't in the midst of calm and peace. It wasn't even, it, it wasn't when, uh, you know, people liked the apostles and they were filling up churches and stadiums and auditoriums that this church thing took off. They had just killed Jesus. Now, that's a hard thing to preach about because if they killed him, you know they're going to kill you if you still claim to be a follower of that man, especially if you claim that that man was resurrected and came back to life. You mean the problem that we thought we took care of and put on a cross and buried in a tomb is out again? I mean, what do I have to do to get rid of this man? What do I have to do to take care of this situation? If killing him doesn't work, what other... So we're just going to start killing off every one of you. Let's see how many of you resurrect. Let's see how many of you come back to life. This is what's going on as the church is convening in an upper room, 120 of them. The power of God falls upon them. And then 3,000 souls are added to this church in one day and then another 5,000 and then now it gets broken up because of persecution but that only caused it to go all over the world now it's in Italy now it's in Spain now it's running up through Asia some believe that uh, the apostle Thomas the disciple Thomas the one that wouldn't believe Jesus unless he saw him, right? The one that had unbelief, and he got as far as to India. And now here we are in the United States of America reading the same words that they were preaching and reading of what they were doing. There, it began with 120 people in an upper room. Persecution doesn't mean the end. They, they recognize that the end of my life is not the end of my cause. And they realize I can lay down my life for the cause because this thing's going on beyond me anyway. But opposition is never an issue. God has always had to deal with opposition. So he says here, do business till I come. Occupy till I come. This means that we shouldn't be more concerned with leaving the earth than we are than the impact we are leaving on the earth. Does that make sense? I think we've got it on the screen so y'all can see it. Because it's a very formidable statement. We should not be more concerned with leaving the earth than we are on the impact we want to leave on the earth. We've got to recognize this. We've got to recognize we are here for a purpose. But until we get interested in the purpose, we'll never affect it. Until we make God's agenda our agenda, we will never become effective in the earth. We don't have it in the slides. I put it in uh, the U version app. So if you're using your iPhone or iPad or whatever, you can follow along 
there. And you'll want to pull that up. And when you listen to this message again later this week, I said when you listen to this message again later this week, you can still pull up those notes. It'll be in there all week long, and you can follow right back along with the message. Ready affects you. Busy busy affects others. Ready affects you. Busy affects others. We don't need to just be a church that is ready for Jesus to come back. We need to be a church that's helping others get ready for Jesus to come back. I want to read this quote out of a book that I was reading from a man who was born in Nigeria and he pastors a church of about 20,000 in the Ukraine. And uh, back in the 90s, God sent him on a very important agenda, uh, a a country um, that is uh, covered with communism. And he said, I want you to start this work, start this church. And they had to come against literal political opposition. In our country, we get to celebrate things like this. He did it. And he had to come against that. And there were multiple marches on the Capitol itself. And they just had to believe that the men surrounding the Capitol with rifles wouldn't shoot on the Capitol. He was just doing what God called him to do. And he made this statement. He says, believers, by and large, are so buried in their churches that they are invisible to the rest of the world. We disengage from the world and still claim to be doing kingdom work. Even worse is how we criticize people who are doing kingdom work. They're on the sidelines, in fact. Uh, He he says says this, uh, most church leaders... um, Most church leaders have not even addressed these issues. They're on the sidelines. In fact, they're not even in the stadium. These problems mean life or death for countless millions. They mean much more than what color the carpet in the chapel is or who will sing in the worship band. But the Christian community is largely mute on the major issues of the day. The greatest thing the church has is its voice, and we're silencing ourselves. We're silencing ourselves. He says, do business till I come. Now, God is looking for a righteous church. And I'm going to identify the problem that the church has today. The church has the hardest problem separating sin from an individual. We don't feel like we can hate sin without hating the person. And we don't feel like we can love people and still address the sin. Now, you can't tell me that God didn't love Adam. You can't tell me that God didn't love Eve. I'm going to take it a step further. I'm going to make it family. I'm going to make it relational. Adam was known as the son of of God. When Adam and Eve sinned by eating of that fruit and by disobeying God himself, he kicked them out of his presence.
that mean God didn't love Adam anymore? Does that mean that God didn't love Eve anymore? Does that mean that he kicked them out of his family? No, but things change. Things change. See, God didn't hate Adam and Eve. He didn't hate them. He never put a condition on his love and says, I'll only love you if you can keep yourself from eating of this fruit. But you realize he kicked his own son out of the house. So why are we, as the church of the living God, trying to keep people in the house that God's trying to kick out? Why are we dealing with sin differently than God dealt with sin? Our position against sin is the church's greatest stand in the earth today. The church ought to be known for its position against sin. We should not have the same divorce rate in the church that we do in the world. We should not be debating the same moral issues that the world is debating. There should be an obvious difference. These people do not stand for that. But because we want to be accepted by the world, we have to accept their sin. We don't look at the word to find out how did God deal with sin and still love people. This is what we've got to address today. Because the church is not known today for its position against sin. The world laughs at us, guys. The media writes about how church leaders are at a 50% argument on whether or not homosexuality should be allowed in the church. And if it's even a sin in the first place. They laugh at us. They mock us. Because we can't rightly divide the word and stand firm on what the word says. Matthew Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Angel appears to Mary and says this, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not from the devil, not from hell, not give them something that will cover up the sin. He says that he will save them from their sins. Not just the past history, but what you're currently doing and future tense. That doesn't mean just forgiveness of sin. It means he will save them from their sins. Romans gives us a clear picture of this. Romans chapter 6 clearly shows us what it means to be saved from your sins. Jesus died on the cross not to take you somewhere, but to take something out of you. 
God is at a crossroads because the thing that he hates the most is living inside of the thing that he loves the most. And he still loves Adam, but he abhors and he hates the sin. So I've got to find a way to get the sin out of the man if I want to be back with the man again. I want to be with mankind so bad. I need to use mankind in the earth today so bad that I have to get rid of the sin nature that's inside of me. God hates sin. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, it says this, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Be dead to sin. Render it ineffective in your life so that you can live for God. Therefore, do not let. Do not let. Do not let. Well, the devil made me do it. The sin's just so I'm just struggling with the sin. The struggle is real. Yeah, the struggle is real. And it says, do not let. That means it's up to you. God, deliver me from this sin. Deliver me from this addiction. Deliver me from this habit. Deliver me from this foul mouth. Deliver me from this attitude. Deliver me. He's saying, do not let sin reign. What's reign mean? Have power. Have control. Govern you. Dominate you. Tell you what to do. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Why? Because if you are alive, that means you have the opportunity to choose. Only dead people can't choose. So he says, render yourself alive because you get the choice. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Grace. Well, we love that word, grace. And I am so thankful for God's grace. But God's grace is not an excuse to live in sin. It's the very power over sin Itself, You don't break a pornography addiction without grace. You don't change your mouth and your words without grace. You don't change your habits and how you act every day without grace. You don't treat your spouse the way they're supposed to be treated without grace. You don't live for the king without grace. But grace is the very power that empowers you to live the kingdom life. The world doesn't want to hear that. So let's tell them what they want to hear.
Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Throw this up there real quick. Hebrews chapter 13. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Guys, God still sees sin the way he's always seen it. And if you're waiting for God to change his opinion on a certain type of sin, you're going to be waiting all your life. And we've got to clue the world in on this, that he's not going to change his mind. That's a sin, and that isn't. That's a sin, and that isn't. So quit sinning. Quit hoping that one day my lifestyle will be acceptable to God. Quit coming up with excuses to justify your lifestyle. Quit drawing the line in the sand and seeing how close you can get to it. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Malachi chapter 3. For I am the Lord, I do not change. I don't change. I will always see that as sin. It's sin. And I hate it. So don't do it. Verse 7. If from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them, return to me and I will return to you. Return to me and I will return to you. You return to me. And God will meet you where you're at. No, he says you return. And he'll, he'll take me just as I am. No, he doesn't. You can come to him just as you are, but he doesn't take you just as you are. He is requiring that you change your lifestyle and that you come out of darkness into light. It is a requirement. There is no other way. Yeah, you can come just as you are. You don't have to put on a show. But when you get on the other side of this thing, you'd better be ready to lay down everything that was keeping you out of it in the first place. Because he wants none of it. And if you want your sin more than you want God, you get none of God. God will never change his stance on sin. The problem is that the church has changed their stance on sin. And we are the ones that are the example and the representative of God. You're an ambassador for Christ, Paul said. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God, Paul said. So I don't get the right to determine what my nation or what my kingdom stands for. Our ambassadors across the world right now for the United States of America are not over there changing diplomacy and principles. They are bound as an ambassador of the United States of America to uphold that which the United States of America stands for. Well, you know, I personally, or you have no opinion. There is no personally. You strip yourselves of yourself and you live for the king. And what he says and what he wants. If you don't know what the Bible says about something, go to the word. This is our constitution. This is what declares what God wants, what God loves, and what God doesn't want, and what God hates. Very simple. If we don't see sin the way God sees sin, we won't see people the way God sees people. 
Love the person, hate the sin. Hate the sin, love the person, right? Why do we have such a hard time with that? Why do we have to why do we have such a hard time with that? You're living in sin. Change your ways. Change your ways. See, the problem is, is we don't see the bondage that people are in by their sin lifestyle. We don't see really what the sin is doing to them. And so we don't address it. But God sees what the sin's doing. God sees the destruction that's taking place. God knows if they continue down this path, they are going to enter the road without looking both ways and they're going to get smashed by a semi. That there is an enemy that has come to steal and to kill and destroy. He does not care about you. He doesn't care about your comfort. He doesn't care about your financial wellness. He doesn't care about your kids. He doesn't care about your home. He doesn't care about your mortgage. He doesn't care about your job. He doesn't care about your favor. He doesn't care about you. That's the path you're going down. And until we see sin the way God sees sin, we won't see people. You won't see them bound up. You won't see them in the destruction they're heading for. You won't address the sin because you love the person. No, because you love the person, you will address the sin. God is looking for a righteous church. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26 in the New Living says this, You must be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. I have set you apart. I have set you apart from all other people to be my very own. I have set you apart. I've consecrated you for a special work. So why are we doing so much work to try to look like them and appease them and appeal to them? And God's saying, I'm trying to set you apart. You're undoing the work that I'm trying to do in you. You must be holy. Would God tell you to do something you couldn't do? We've always made holiness like this thing far off in the sky. And man, you, one day I'll be holy when I'm you know, lifted up into the clouds with, with Jesus and uh, you, know, all, you know, with the angels. I'll be holy and, and then I, God will make me do what he wants me to do. If God has to make you do what he wants you to do, then you don't love him. How many of you married couples, if, the, if your spouse made you do it, that's proving love to them? I don't think so. Leviticus eleven, forty four. For I am the Lord your God. You must consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Consecrate yourselves. That means set yourself apart and be holy. Isn't it interesting that every time he talks about holiness, he's talking about separation? I wonder why. We're about to find out. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, verse 16, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So God is holy. It means he has nothing to do with sin. Therefore, you should be holy, having nothing to do with sin. Now, 
he mentions this whole deal of consecration. He mentions this whole thing of separating from. And watch this, Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. An immovable church is a righteous church. I'll tell you what, if you aren't righteous, you will be moved. You will compromise. Because you can't change something if it's changing you. Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows but even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were. Isn't that interesting? He just says, you're not going to know. And then he gives you an example of what it's going to look like. But as of the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking. They were taking in. Marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Verse 39. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. Eating and drinking. There's nothing wrong with eating and drinking. Marrying and giving in marriage. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, God created the first marriage. What's the problem? Well, let's go to Genesis chapter 6. Let's find out. Let's go to Noah. Genesis chapter 6. Eating and drinking, marrying and giving to marriage. This is what he brings up when he talks about the days of Noah. This is what he's talking about. Eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. So that tells us that's what we need to look for. The hour is upon us. The, The day that we can look. For the coming of Jesus, this is the sign. This is the identifier. Eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Now, you guys are all thinking literal, but let's change that. Now, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men. Sons of God saw the daughters of men. Now. There are many theologians that have many different doctrinal ideas on what this means. But most believe that because of the line that came from Adam, uh, Cain sinned. Abel died. There's a new son named Seth. So Seth is now the good line and Cain is now the bad line. Now, Seth is born into sin because his parents have already sinned. But there's always a righteous remnant. There's always people that choose righteousness over sin. And so what they say is that the sons of God is referring to the line of Seth. And the daughters of men refers to the line of Cain. So one identifies good, one identifies evil. Now, it keeps on going. And they took wives 
for themselves of all whom they chose. Mary. Mary. Now, spiritually, the marriage between the church and the world is the church's demise. Holiness is the result of consecration, setting yourself apart from the world. But yet, more so today than ever before, are, are, are we seeing the line between the church and the world so faded? So faded. Marriage. And the giving in marriage. The allowance. Look what it, let's keep on reading here. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Oh, they'll create some good looking stuff. A marriage between the church and the world doesn't mean that it's just going to automatically look terrible and evil. It'll have a look of, wow, that's strong, that's mighty. But it's the very reason why God came and said, I'm going to have to remove my spirit. And on top of that, I'm going to have to bring destruction. A destruction like the world has never seen. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was just a man, was a just man, perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. That which you walk with, you become. Sons of God are marrying the women of the world. They're marrying the ideas and the thoughts and the intents of the world. And now they've all become evil. They connected themselves with the world. But Noah, Noah walked with God. And therefore, he was the righteous man God was looking for to save the world. God is looking for a church that will walk with him. Set themselves apart from the world. Now, we've said this before. That doesn't mean we need to go build our own colony somewhere. That doesn't mean we need to just stay in our churches. That means we set ourselves apart in thought, in intentions, in actions, 
and lifestyles and opinions and beliefs. It should be identifiable to the world that these people do not stand for that. You cannot reach what you become. And the church is allowed so much of the world in, in justification, we've got to appeal to them to reach. But what they forgot, what they forgot is that those people have something inside of them that God hates. And if we don't address the thing that God hates, I can't save the thing that God loves. We've diminished the gospel of Jesus to the gospel about Jesus. We talk more about Jesus than we do the kingdom. We talk more about the cross than what the cross does for us. I'm not saying those things shouldn't be talked about. If it wasn't for Jesus and it wasn't for the cross, we wouldn't have the kingdom. We wouldn't have righteousness. But let's at some point enter the kingdom of God and then do, apply, live the kingdom of God. We do real good at getting people to the door. But even Jesus himself said, I'm just the door. I'm just the doorway, man. I'm not the end. I'm the beginning. The doorway is the entrance. The doorway is where you start. What if I asked you over to my house and you came and you just stood at my door? And I go inside and, I come, and I'm like, where? Where are they at? And I go back to the door and they're just standing. I love your door. Your door is so awesome. I am so thankful for your door. If it wasn't for your door. Yeah. If it wasn't for the door, you couldn't get in my house. But in my house, there's food on the table waiting for you. There's couches waiting for you to sit on. There's a bed for you to sleep on when you're tired. I've got things in the house that I want to get to you. And you're standing at the door. I am the way the truth and the life he's the way to he said nobody comes to my father except through me Jesus said these words the Jesus that died on the cross so that sin wouldn't dominate you anymore well at least one day I'm going to get to heaven that's not why he died on the cross And as long as we preach that message, and as long as we diminish and devalue why Jesus came, we'll never do what Jesus did. And Jesus restored the kingdom of God. Now, he loves sinners. He loves sinners. In fact, you can find a whole chapter in Matthew, I believe it's uh, chapter 23, where he just goes off on the Pharisees, the religious people. I mean, tears them up, up and down. I mean, they have never heard anything like this. It's the chapter that got him to the cross. It was that chapter that says, that's it. We're doing something about this now. Now he's ratting us out. Now he's saying that the God that we worship 
isn't even real. I didn't come and bring all these goats and doves and, and pigeons and lambs and do all these sacrifices to have some fanatic that calls himself the son of God tell me I'm living wrong. So he's got some words for the church. But I can tell you right now that Jesus hated sin. And I can tell you right now, he still hates sin. He's looking for a church that would stand out. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Worship team, if you'd come. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And I guess by that I mean Chase and Lisa. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you... You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Nations have culture. Nations are identifiable by the way that they look, the way that they act, the way that they talk. They have accents. Their words mean different words in some countries than they do in ours. Their music is different. Their entertainment is different. A holy nation, his own special people, that you may may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Out of darkness. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 27. Jesus is coming back that he might present her to himself. A glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. I'm going to tell you something right now. Someone made this statement, you know, I don't think the church looks like that. Is Jesus even going to find that church? That church is here. I believe that it's going to look a lot smaller than what the world thinks it looks like or even what most Christians think it looks like. Do you realize that when Jesus comes back, only half of the church is going up? I have proof. Jesus told a parable of ten virgins that all thought they were getting ready for the same day. That were all dressed, dressed as the bride. But only five out of the ten. The other five aren't the world. The other five are those that think they're the church, but not the church. Half. Not 90%. Not one got left out. Not three out of ten. Half. But he's presenting to himself a church. A glorious church with no spot or wrinkle that is holy 
and without blemish. Now watch this, guys. This is the exciting part. This is the exciting part. Get ready to smile. It will never get so bad that you can't be righteous. It's never, sin's never going to get so overwhelming that you will be unable to stand for what is right in the kingdom of God. God has always, in the midst of even the worst darkness, has always looked for righteousness. His nation, Israel, got demolished by Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar comes in. Let me tell you how bad King Nebuchadnezzar is. He goes and he finds the king, the king that wouldn't listen to Jeremiah. Jeremiah told him over and over, turn from your ways, turn from your ways. There is destruction coming, turn from your ways. The king wouldn't listen to him. And Nebuchadnezzar found that king in a field because he was running. Babylon's already overthrown Jerusalem, and the king's getting out. They found him in a field. They captured him. King Nebuchadnezzar had already captured his two sons. And he took his two sons and slit their throats right in front of the king. And then gouged the king's eyes out so that would be the last thing he ever saw. That's what happened to God's people that wouldn't turn from their wickedness. That's what he turned them over. But even in the midst of that, even in the midst of that capture, there's a man named Daniel. There's a man named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's a man named Ezekiel that got captured but still found a way to be righteous. Oh, you got a 90-foot idol for me to bow down to? I'm not bowing down to that. I'm righteous. Even in the midst of darkness, we're going to throw you in the fire. Throw me in the fire. And Jesus shows up in the midst of the fire. in the midst of the greatest darkness. Are we going to be the church? Are we going to be the church? Immovable. Unshakable. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. The only thing that gets shaken Will you always stand for the kingdom? And with every head bowed, every eye closed, I give you a proposition today. I give you an opportunity today to be a part of a kingdom that is immovable, unshakable, that will never be overcome, that will never be overtaken. 
I don't mean the Lord's Prayer. I don't mean salvation. I don't mean being born again. I mean, you're acknowledging today, I've been in this kingdom, but I haven't fought for this kingdom. I haven't stood for this kingdom. I've allowed compromise. I've allowed things to show up in my life that are of the world. But I don't want that culture in me. I consecrate. I set myself. And I make myself holy before a holy God. Right now, where you're at, it may be big, it may be small. I don't know. It may be just an opportunity to say, you know what? I'm acknowledging that Jesus is my king. And I'm going to live for him all my days. Every day from here on out. Every decision from here on out is going to be in line with the kingdom of God. I line my finances up with the kingdom. I line my marriage up with the kingdom. I line my parenting up with the kingdom. I line my family up with the kingdom. I line the way that I operate at work up with the kingdom. I line my mouth up with the kingdom. I align my thoughts with the kingdom. There is no time. There is no time for the church to back down now. Father, we thank you today that your grace and your mercy is new every day, every morning. We are not condemned for failures. We overcome failures. We thank you for the power of your love and the power of your grace that doesn't just keep us in our sin, but pulls us out of our sin that delivers us from sin and iniquity. And we put down the old man and we put on the new man that is robed in righteousness. And we give you all the glory and we give you all the praise. And now I thank you and I declare that this church right here in Valdosta, Georgia will be a light in the midst of darkness. There's no adversity. There's no opposition that will cause us to back down, that will cause us to compromise. We will stand for truth. We will stand for the word. We will do it in love, but we will not compromise what your word says. All others can fail, but you will never fail. We declare that today in our lives and in this church in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Don't forget to smile. Don't forget to smile. If being set free from sin is not enough to make you smile, we're delivered. We have overcome. We're overcomers. We're more than conquerors through him. Wow.